Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Larry McMurtry of the American Pen Center, and we are very happy tonight to welcome you to the first and what we hope will be a modest series of salutes to the writing of various American regions, starting with the Pacific Northwest. Um, of course, regions don't really write books. People write books. And there's a sense in which it would be impossible to assemble a truly rep a, a group of writers that would absolutely and comprehensively represent any of our regions. Nonetheless, um, I think you can say that there's a sense in which regions write on writers. And we've gathered together a group of writers from the Pacific Northwest tonight, which we think have been written on by their regions in an interesting way, and they've repaid this by writing some wonderful books. Uh, I'm going to give very simple, very basic introductions. I've suffered myself too many times from introductions so torturous that I had forgotten who I was and what I was supposed to do and lost all interest in the proceedings before I even got on stage. So I'm going to let these writers represent themselves, principally their regions, to whatever extent they want to. And we're going to start with Catherine Dunn, who is the author of two of my favorite books from the 70s, Truck and Attic. And Catherine Dunn just recently has published a wonderful novel called Geek Love, which has been nominated for a National Book Award. Kathy. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here in New York and honored to be in such company, I must say. Mr. McMurtry is kind of in the position of, I guess it's the, the Christopher Columbus spot in which there have been a lot of rumors for a long time of gold in the Northwest. And uh, there's certainly been a lot of individual enterprise and books and works of all kinds coming out, but they've never been really tagged with that label or, or very rarely really tagged with where they're from. So often you'll be reading a writer for a very long time and enjoying them without knowing where they're from or really understanding what their history and geography and background may be. And, and maybe, I don't know, we always debate about whether there's a regional voice, at least in the Northwest. And I guess my first and last responsibility as a temporary ambassador here from the far west is simply to let you all know that for every one of the five of us that there are here, there are at least 300 writers still at home in the Northwest as we speak, working <laughs> on books and essays and poems and articles and stories and textbooks and scripts and thousands of other uh, projects which will very soon be available on your magazine racks and newsstands. And um, that's kind of a mystery to me. I've, I've never quite understood why uh, the Pacific Northwest produces so many boxers and so many writers. We don't have slums, or at least not what anybody else would recognize. We don't have the high-rise, you know, five-to-a-bed, pawn shop and pool hall kinds of slums. We have these kind of easygoing, shanty, um, maybe a little sloppy, the plumbing is uh, primitive perhaps, kinds of slums. And it's hard to tell where this enormous drive toward this incredible creativity comes from. 
But I guess we have to really attribute it in the long run to the climate, which is um, never lethal. There is never a time, at least in Oregon and Washington, well, well, let's put it this way. In general, in Oregon and Washington, Andy Hope is from Alaska, so he's got an entirely different tale to tell here. But in Oregon and Washington, the, the weather isn't out to get you. If, you. if you're going to get killed by the weather, you have to really insist. You have to work on it. In general, you are not, even on January 3rd, going to freeze to death between your front door and the grocery store. It's just not going to happen. But actually, right now, most of those writers back in the Northwest are not writing. They are not at their terminals, computers, or notepads. They are sitting in bars, taverns, and on telephones, talking to each other, swapping war stories, and, and probably being witty at the expense of those of us who are not present, I suppose. But probably a lot of them, maybe I, I was sitting on the plane coming out here making this little list for myself of all the writers I know of, and I stopped after about 104, uh, realizing that there are hundreds and hundreds that are probably familiar to you uh, as, resi as, as residents of literature, but maybe not uh, as residents of the Northwest. Um, Ursula Le Guin, Jean Owl, Patrick McManus, Raymond Carver, Anne Rule, Kim Stafford, Mary Barnard, Kate Wilhelm and Damon Knight, Robert Sheckley, used to be a New Yorker, born and raised that way, then in exile in Ibiza off the coast of Spain. Five years ago, he made the mistake of visiting Portland, Oregon, and has never escaped. He still lives right around the corner from me, a grand old man of science fiction who is uh, fantasizing merrily and being extremely prolific on Northwest Hoyt Street. So it's just uh, one of those intensely uh, bizarre situations when you realize that you are in this very quiet little region. It's very green. It's very wild in many places. There aren't, there aren't as many people in my town of Portland, Oregon, as or, actually there aren't as many people in the entire state of Oregon as there are in Manhattan on a Sunday morning. I mean that's, and yet we have, we believe, more writers per capita than either New York or Los Angeles. There's some strange vortex going on in the region. Some of us are just growed there. Uh, but a lot of people come voluntarily. I expect an influx, actually, of recruits uh, in the wake of this uh, San Francisco earthquake. And uh, we'll adopt them, and they'll be ours within a matter of days, and we won't, uh, we'll never let them go because we love writers in Portland and in Oregon and in Washington. And somehow uh, they just belong there and aren't terribly noticeable. When I, uh, but it's, it's one of those funny things that even the region itself isn't terribly aware of it. I grew up uh, mostly in Oregon and Washington and was a farm kid, had no idea of the numbers of writers around, of the incredible numbers of bookstores in that region, uh, or of the very progressive school system that tends to lean very heavily on literature. Had no awareness of that whatsoever. All I knew is that from the age of five or six, I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to write. And I had no notion of any of it all the way through college. It escaped me. And I went away for 10 years. You know, you kind of, the young people out there get this kind of, I am itching to get out of Portland, Oregon blues. And it's a, a kind of healthy thing that hits at around the age of 17 or 18, and they all leave. And, and in that usual way, I left and uh, stayed away for 10 years, uh, lived in New York, lived in Europe, and then decided for some 
reason, kind of like the, the raindrop that sits at the top of the windowsill and says, well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm going down. And so I went back to Portland, Oregon, where I found all my cronies who had also left about the same time I had. And we had all come back. And all that time away, and all the time that I was a young writer struggling, I had never met a flesh and blood stand up and talk writer. Not even in New York City. Not even though all that time I had been making my living as a professional writer. Now this is uh, maybe just a little anomaly of the particular path I followed. But when it actually happened for me was when uh, in 1977 I walked back into Portland, Oregon and was strolling around the neighborhood one evening and uh, heard strange voices coming out of a particularly sleazy bar called The Long Goodbye. And I went in and there was William Stafford and Primus St. John and Vern Retzala and the gutter street poet of all time, Walt Curtis, all reading their poets on stage in this dark little bar, and their poems. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life to just have this kind of lightning strike in front of me. I had, I had thought poetry ended with Wordsworth, and I was content for it to do so. So I was really pleased when all this, uh, this newness came down around me in my old hometown, something that I had had no suspicion of. And in the, in, the, in the years since then, I've become aware of more and more and more and more writers in my immediate vicinity. There have got to be, you know, 200 books that have been published within about 10 square blocks of where I live. And nobody knows it. These are all people who are out there, you know, washing the car and getting parking tickets, just like everybody else. They're uh, anonymous in their own land, and it's only, actually many of them are far better known here than they are in, in their own hometown. But it's a mystery why we don't, we don't really know. The climate is an attraction, of course, because it's, it's easy to write when it's, uh, when it's raining outside. There's no particular urge to you know, swing out to the beach and, and uh, strip down when it's 55 degrees and gray. Um, you understand that, actually. Or actually, Oregon has exa almost exactly the same precipitation level as New York, except that we brag about our rain to keep people away. <laughs> and um, there are also a lot of bookstores, a lot of very gutsy little publishing houses, lots of magazines, lots of small presses and newspapers for young people to get started on. And all these things seem to be part of a, a mesh that, that creates a general agar-agar that's healthy for writing in, in the Northwest. And, and it certainly is a pleasurable thing to be a writer there because once you realize that you're not alone, and this is one of the terrible little um, dichotomies of mind, I suppose, that you, it is a lonely sport and you have to more or less do it alone unless you're a reporter working in a crowded newsroom. But there's that kind of delicious feeling of comfort that you get when you realize that there are many, many people out there and you can meet them on the corner and ask for their advice or get their uh, agent's phone number or <laughs> the other critical elements of, of help that writers can give to each other. It's almost, it's comforting, kind of like Weight Watchers, you know, not having to do it alone. <laughs> Or uh, maybe even Alcoholics Anonymous has that kind of soothing, stroking process of simply knowing that you're not alone in the world in this rather bizarre and maybe addictive enterprise. So it's a good place to be a writer, and uh, and I'm very glad to be a writer there. Uh, I had I had written two novels uh, back in the late '60s and early '70s, and then I started. Uh, 
I, I had one of these horrible revelations in which I decided that I didn't know nearly enough about writing to be passing myself off as a novelist. So I started writing, I quit novelizing and started uh, writing short stories and eventually turned to journalism as an area. And this was not with the idea that I was quitting writing, it was with the idea that I was out there trying to learn. As one of those people who didn't listen in sixth grade, I had a lot of uh, making up to do. And, and it was uh, about, it was 1979 uh, in June, two years after I got back to Portland and had begun to meet a lot of writers, that I uh, began to write Geek Love. And I'm just going to uh, read from the first page and the first chapter and go on like that a little bit, very briefly. This first chapter is called The Nuclear Family, His Talk, Her Teeth. And I should explain that in geek love, the, the word geek is not used to mean a personality defect as the, as the colloquial language has come to use that, that term. This is using the word geek as its specific carnival meaning, which is that character in a carnival sideshow who entertains the crowd by biting the heads off live chickens. And there are variations on this, of course. There, there, there are geeks who uh, simply stick python heads down their throats, but there are geeks who also, in a, in a very wasteful manner, bite the heads off garter snakes or rats or so on and so on. I mean, Ozzie Osbourne did not come out of nowhere. There is a historic tradition uh, for this. And this book is basically the, the, the history of, of a carnival, a family of carnival owners who decide to cut back on their overhead by breeding their own freak show. So um, this chapter opens with the family sitting around the, the family, the traveling van at night. And the children who are spoken of in, in the introduction, or in, in this section, are Arturo, who's the aqua boy. He has no limbs, only flippers instead of arms and legs. And Ellie and Iffy are Electra and Iphigenia, the Siamese twins, who are perfect, beautiful young women uh, from the waist up, but they share one set of hips and legs. And our narrator is Olympia, the bald albino hunchback pygmy girl. And Chick is the, uh, the child who is born to apparent normalcy, to the great disappointment of his parents, but who has a special gift. But this begins, uh, the nuclear family, his talk, her teeth. When your mama was the geek, my dreamlets, Papa would say, she made the nipping off of noggins such a crystal mystery that the hens themselves yearned toward her, waltzing around her, hypnotized with longing. Spread your lips, sweet lil, they'd cluck, and show us your choppers. But this same crystal lil, our star-haired mama, sitting snug on the built-in sofa that was Artie's bed at night, would chuckle at the sewing in her lap and shake her head. Don't piffle to the children, Al. Those hens ran like whiteheads. Nights on the road this would be, between shows and towns in some campground or pull-off with the other vans and trucks and trailers of Benuski's Carnival Fabulon ranged up around us, safe in our portable village. After supper, sitting with full bellies in the lamp glow, we Benuskis were supposed to read and study, but if it rained, the story mood would sneak up on Papa. The hiss and tick on the metal of our big living van distracted him from his papers. Rain on a show night was catastrophe. Rain on the road meant chalk, which for Papa was pure pleasure. It's a shame and a pity, Lil, he'd say, that these offspring of yours should only know the slumming summer geeks from Yale. 
Princeton, dear, Mama would correct him mildly. Randall will be a sophomore this fall. I believe he's our first Princeton boy. It's one of the conceits of the novel is that all of the, all of the geeks, the regular geeks in the carnival, are college boys run away uh, from uh, Ivy League schools during the summer. We children would sense our stories slipping away to trivia. Artie would nudge me and I'd pipe up with, tell about the time when Mama was the geek. And Artie and Ellie and Iffy and Chick would all slide into line with me on the floor between Papa's chair and Mama. Mama would pretend to be fascinated by her sewing. And Papa would tweak his swooping mustache and vibrate his tangled eyebrows, pretending reluctance. Well, he'd begin, it was a long time ago, before we were born. Before, he'd proclaim, waving an arm in his grandest ringmaster style, before I even dreamed you my dreamlets. I was still Lillian Hinchliffe in those days, mused Mama, and when your father spoke to me, which was seldom and reluctantly, he called me Miss. Miss, we would giggle. Papa would whisper to us loudly, as though Mama couldn't hear. Terrified. I was so smitten I'd stutter when I tried to talk to her. m miss I'd say. And we would giggle helplessly at the idea of Papa, the great talker, so flummoxed. I, of course, addressed your father as Mr. Banuski. There I was, said Papa, hosing the old chicken blood and feathers out of the geek pit on the morning of July 3rd and congratulating myself for having good geek posters, telling myself I was going to sell tickets by the bale because the weekend of the 4th is the hottest time for geeks and I had a fine brawny geek that year, enthusiastic about the work he was. So I'm hosing away, feeling very comfortable and proud of myself, when up trips your mama looking like angel food and tells me my geek has done a flit in the night folded his rags, as you might say, and hailed a taxi for the airport. He leaves a note claiming his pop is very sick, and he, the geek, must retire from the pit and take his fangs home to Philadelphia to run the family bank. Brokerage, dear, corrects Mama. And with your Mama, Miss Hinchliffe, standing there like three scoops of vanilla, I can't even cuss. What am I going to do? The geek posters are all over town. It was during a war, darlings, explains Mama. I forget which one, precisely. Your father had difficulty getting help at that time, or he never would have hired me even to make costumes as inexperienced as I was. So I'm standing there fuddled from breathing Miss Hinchliffe's midnight marzipan perfume and cross-eyed with figuring. I couldn't climb into the pit myself because I was doing 20 jobs already. I couldn't ask Horse the Catman because he was a vegetarian to begin with, and his dentures would disintegrate the first time he hit a chicken neck anyway. Suddenly, your mama pops up for all the world like she's offering me sherry and biscuits. I'll do it, Mr. Beninsky, she says, and I just about sent a present to my laundryman. Mama smiled sweetly into her sewing and nodded. I was anxious to prove myself useful to the show. I'd been with Beninsky's Fabulon only two weeks at the time, and I felt very keenly that I was on trial. So I says, interrupts Papa, but miss, what about your teeth? Meaning she might break them or chip them. And she smiles wide just like she's smiling now, and says, They're sharp enough, I think. We looked at Mama, and her teeth were white and straight, but of course, by that time, they were all false. I looked at her delicate little jaw, and I just groaned, No, I says, I couldn't ask you to, but it did flash into my mind that a blonde and lovely geek with legs, and I mean, your Mama has what we refer to in the trade as legs, would do the business no real harm. I'd never heard of a girl geek before, and the poster possibilities were glorious. And then I thought again, no, 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 she couldn't. What your papa didn't know was that I'd watched the geek several times, and of course I'd often helped Minna, our cook at home, when she slaughtered a fowl for the table. 
I had him. He had no choice but to give me a try. Oh, but I was scared spitless when her first show came up that afternoon. Scared she'd be disgusted and go home to Boston. Scared she'd flub the deal and have the crowd screaming for their money back. Scared she'd get hurt. I mean, a chicken could blink and scratch her, peck an eye out, anything. I was quite nervous myself, nodded Mama. The crowd was good. A hot Saturday, that was, and the 4th of July was the Sunday. I was running like a geeked bird the whole day myself and just had time to duck behind the pit for one second before I stood up front to lead in the mugs. There she was, like a butterfly. But I wore tatters, really, white, because it shows the blood so well, even in the dark of the pit. But such artful tatters, such low-necked, silky, slit-to-the-thigh tatters. I took a deep breath and went out to talk them in. And in they went, a lot of soldiers in the crowd. I was still selling tickets when the cheers and whistles started inside. And then the whooping and stomping on those old wood bleachers drew even more people. I finally grabbed the popcorn kid to sell tickets and went inside to see for myself. Papa grinned at Mama and twiddled his mustache. I'll never forget, he chuckled. Well, I couldn't growl, you see, or snarl convincingly, so I sang, explained Mama. Happy little German songs in a high, thin voice. Franz Schubert, my dears. She fluttered around like a dainty bird. And when she caught those ugly, squawking hens, you couldn't believe she'd actually do anything. When she went right ahead and geeked them, that whole larruping crowd went bonzo wild. There never was such a snap and twist of the wrist, such a vampire flick of the jaws over a neck, or such a champagne approach to the blood. She'd shake her star-white hair, and the bitten-off chicken head would skew off into the corner while she dug her rosy little fingernails in and lifted the flopping, jittering carcass like a golden goblet and sipped, absolutely sipped at the wriggling guts. She was magnificent, a princess, a Cleopatra, an elven queen. That was your mama in the geek pit. <laughs> Well, with that wonderful start, I think I'm going to conduct the rest of this evening like a rodeo. Uh, in a rodeo, they always tell you where the bronc rider or the bull rider is from just before they open the gate and let him out to uh, challenge his fate. Uh, our next reader will be Lawson Anata, who comes to us, as they say in rodeo, from Ashland, Oregon, the author of a beautiful book of poems called Before the War the editor of a wonderful anthology of Asian-American literature called I.E. Lawson. somewhere where I have decided to stand. There has been long maneuvering, having been staked to a land, sowing in the heat 
moving huge tools in an absurdity of moon, chanting my own tune in the machinery. I find the chanting soothes that sweet voice is ruined. I move now, sifting pavements through my feet, sweat in the eyes, a horizon. Sun turns the wheat, braced to my spine, I resume the chanting. Utterances in a sound, octaves older than my own. Actually, although I've been living in the Northwest since 1965, I come to you from all parts of America. I'm a third-generation Japanese-American, third-generation Californian. I spent my childhood in American concentration camps in California, Arkansas, and Colorado. I've lived and worked in the Midwest, New England, and not only New York, but Long Island. <clears throat> I consider myself to come out of and work within an American artistic tradition which includes artists such as Toshio Mori, Lester Young, Gian Okada, Charlie Parker, and of course the gentleman uh, whose uh, film I saw today, uh, Thelonious Monk. Where I live is in the Northwest is actually in the South, the Southern Northwest along the California border in what is known as the Rogue River Valley. I used to try to explain this when I'd come to New York to people I'd meet at cocktail parties and finally I gave up and just said, I live in San Francisco. And then they'd say, oh yeah, but recently I've been telling people when they say, where are you from, uh, Oregon, what's that? I said, hey look, where I live, is the home of Harry and David. Fruit of the Month Club, as advertised in a New Yorker, and they go, oh yeah, 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 Oregon, okay, I got you. So, uh, that's where I live, folks. What I'll do for you now is I've uh, put a little two-poem suite together, representative of the region. Um, both of these were written for performances with musicians. I do, since I do come out of a musical background, I like to work with musicians. The first piece um, I worked on stage with a gentleman on synthesizer named John Mazay. And the second piece I worked uh, in concert duo with uh, the great pianist Mel Waldron. The first piece is called Headwaters and uh, concerns an actual journey and a representative journey from where I'm living in the Rogue Valley to uh, the Mount Shasta area about an hour south um, which is also at the base of Mount Shasta is the headwaters of the Sacramento River and what happened in the course of the journey was I found myself working through various states of mind 
um, travel mind, um, media mind, academic mind, memory mind, and finally, to mind mind. And so that piece is headwaters, and from them there I'll move into the second piece called Invocation, Invocation for Mal Waldron. Headwaters of the Sacramento, just below Shasta, brimming, throbbing, overflowing with images from the journey to the now. Traffic in the passes, ascending, descending, valleys, fields, shining light, forests full of shadows, quick, slow, close, an expanse of distances, headwaters of the Sacramento just below, Shasta brimming, throbbing, overflowing with frequencies from the journey to the now. Hold on to your hats, here's Runaway Train by Roseanne Cash. Meanwhile, over on the coast, it's you got a fast car. Well, that's right, Bob. It, it was, it's what you call one of those dysfunctional families with addictive personalities and headwaters of the Sacramento just below Shasta, brimming, throbbing, overflowing with messages from the past. Initially, we call them diggers because they dug roots for food, but they also utilized fish, game, berries, and acorns like these, grinding them into meal on rocks like these. See, see, you can still see all the holes they left. The Sierras came into being during the Jurassic period. The first conifers, the first birds also appeared. This rock is obviously sedimentary, whereas when you read the strata, you can see metamorphic, igneous, and so on down to the valley and the alluvial plain. Headwaters of the Sacramento just below Shasta, here on this warm, smooth rock, still warm from the sun, smooth as a body sloping, holding me here. I just want to be here, holding my own at the edge of water in this darkening canyon in the gathering dusk. Yes, of course, of course, I remember, I remember. We had been up and down the North Fork without much luck, but had saved this favorite place for last. It was a tradition since my father had landed that fabled rainbow trout just about dusk, so Uncle Min was heading out there on that rock when suddenly he shouted and then laughed. Sure enough, that same old rattlesnake had been sunning himself and just now was disappearing into a crack. We laughed and went on fishing. We all felt blessed just to be there. 
And it was all daijobu. Daijobu now. Headwaters of the Sacramento just below Shasta. Here, I just want to be here. Incandescent sunset on the ridges, silhouetting conifers. I just want to be here on this rock, listening to the river, the incantations, dipping my hands into the glistening water, raising the water to my face, my eyes, feeling the water, knowing the water, watching the droplets, feeling the droplets fall and run and dry. I just want to be here on this rock, watching the sky. I just want to be here among the spirits when the full moon, the first stars appear. My only ambition, my only plan of action is to see the sun rise. Headwaters, sacrament, images, passes, light, shadows, distances, headwaters, throbbing, frequencies, journey, headwaters, acorns, conifers, sedimentary, metamorphic, igneous, headwaters, smooth, alluvial, sloping, holding, gathering, Headwaters remember tradition, rainbow blessing, daijobu. Headwaters incandescent incantations, glistening. Headwaters listening, watching, feeling, knowing. Headwaters, spirits, rise. Invocation. From the being of me, this receptacle I am, I seek and reach this particular pattern of clouds clustered on the close horizon, the ascension of sunlight on the mountains and the procession therein, become then in the sequence the presiding precedence of things the ordered immediacies, this graceful grove of trees meditating essence of forest and the slow wind that stirs the sinews, stimulating the accumulation of small birds at their calling, foraging for what abides with winter, the stuff of what renews me among grasses and leaves, the ridges and hollows, of the whole entire congregation of collective memory, choruses, patterns in accordance with density, intensity, with destiny. These sing, these glory, these bring me pleasure, and it spreads through the air to where you are now, likewise gifted with gratitude, gracing the brilliant corners of enclaves praising rain, this abiding rain that brings us, takes us, keeps us, huddled in harmonies now as deserts, tundras, cities, signal, 
dawn. Fire waltz, warm canto, soul eyes, tremolo, charging, recharging, tremolo, chanting, enchanting, tremolo, implementation, manifestation, tremolo, come substance, come substance, tremolo, arise, tremolo, arise, tremolo, arise, 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 arise. Now we're going to move up to the northern, northwest coast and hear the poet Andrew Hope, the founder of Raven's Bones Press, Andrew Hope. I'm honored to be here tonight, and I'd like to thank uh, Larry and the Penn people for inviting me here. This is the first time I've ever been to New York City. I'd like to talk uh, briefly about the region where I'm from. I live in uh, Juneau, Alaska. I moved there recently. I lived most of my life. I, I was born in Sitka, Alaska, which is in the middle of southeastern Alaska on the coast on Baranoff Island. <clears throat> the coastal area of southeast Alaska, archaeologists have documented human activity dating back to 10,000 years before present in the last few years. Archaeological work has only taken place, you know, in the last uh, 30 to 40 years in southeast Alaska. Over that time, <clears throat> The glaciers have advanced and receded at least twice. The sea level has risen and fallen a couple times. And our people have moved from inland back to the islands, back inland and back to the islands. The, uh, there's two mountain ranges, one in uh, the, northern, the northern part of southeast Alaska, the St. Elias Mountain Range. And then further south from that is the coastal mountain ranges. And those two mountain ranges and the ice fields that are on the mainland make it uh, very difficult to get access to, to the coast, coastal areas, the islands, where our people settle. My people are the Thlinket. It's uh, a group of approximately 75 clans that uh, live in the islands of southeast Alaska, the northern part of north, the northwest coast, as Larry mentioned, and in the interior of Yukon and British Columbia. Um, the theme for tonight was uh, On Rolls the Mighty Oregon or something like that. We don't have the access to the Mighty Oregon in uh, the area where I live, but our people migrated down to the islands via the mighty Nass River, 
which is in southern southeast Alaska, the Sakin River, which is in central southeast Alaska, the Taku River, that is in north central southeast Alaska, and the Alsek River, which is up near Yakutat in the northern part of southeast Alaska. Uh, my people are a matrilineal society. <clears throat> in the in the uh, in that we follow the line of our mothers, we take our mother's clan. We're divided into two sides, or moieties. The French word is uh, two equal sides. One is raven, and the other is eagle wolf. <clears throat> and over the last 500 years, we have had extensive interaction with the other tribal cultures that uh, are in our neighborhood, the Haida, who are in northern British Columbia, the Simshian, who are also in British Columbia, and the various Athabascan tribes that inhabit Yukon Territory, British Columbia, and go on up into um, the interior of Alaska. <clears throat> interaction with uh, the uh, white folks uh, we have the longest historical uh, interaction with the, the Europeans, beginning around 1741 when uh, uh, a Russian expedition led by Vitus Bering touched upon our area of south, southeast Alaska. The, the Russian accounts of that uh, expedition referred to uh, losing two boatloads of, uh, of the crew. The oral tradition of the Thlinket uh, states that those uh, those crew members were assimilated into the Thlinket because they were afraid to return to the, to the ship. Now, there was about a 50-year period following that initial contact <clears throat> um, where there was hardly any contact at all. But around the seven, 1790, there was a, a flood of explorers, the, the French, the Spanish, the English, uh, um, and the Russians. So we have put up with uh, the people from the old world for about 250 years. <clears throat> and the rest of the natives in Alaska, you know, have not had to put up with uh, the old world folks for that long. <clears throat> so I don't know if it was an advantage or disadvantage or not. You know, I'll read two short accounts from that 1790 period by one from a Spanish uh, explorer and one by a French talking about that time. Um, as I said, we're uh, a matrilineal society. I, uh, there's about 75 clans and there's about 40 clans on the Raven side and 35 on the Eagle Wolf side. And Thlinket common law requires that uh, we marry into the opposite side, the opposite moiety. The golden age of uh, anthropology ran from approximately 1880 to 1930 when uh, in that time a number of anthropologists visited our country <coughs> and recorded their, their ethnographic or ethnological uh, observations and all of which served to kind of lock us into a, a classical literary time warp <clears throat> in that uh, uh, the Thlinket of that era were put onto a classical pedestal and those of us uh, that followed uh, you know are somehow less authentic um, 
and, and diminished, diminished in culture somehow. And, but our culture was not static in 18, 1880, and it's not static today. You know, the 250 years is, is just, just a teeny sliver of time when you look at that 10,000 years of, uh, of uh, time. You know, it, it's, it's very hard for me to conceive of that scope of time, that time period, that amount of time. I was born in Sitka, and Sitka is the anglicized pronunciation of the Tlingit name for the west coast of Baranoff Island, Shiatika. And Shiatika translates as the outer edge of a branch with, with knots running through it, you know, and that kind of describes the edge of the island that has bays and fjords cutting across it. Um, Sitka is the homeland of my father's people, the kick study of the raven moiety. And my mother is from the Wrangell area. We belong to the Siknachadi clan of the eagle wolf moiety, and our clan house is a firehouse or red clay house. My Tlingit name is Chastanch, which translates as killer whales coming down a, in a wave, a reference to either killer whales going after sea lions or are people going to war with the Simshians? This, this first poem um, is entitled The Thlinket Market, and I wrote this a few years back. But I wanted to read uh, these short little excerpts from those uh, first uh, trading expeditions that visited in around the 17th, prior, just right before the 18th century. And this first one is uh, from Malaspina's expedition and when he visited the Yakutat Tlingit. To this market came every kind of manufactured article from the moment the natives observed on the part of the officers a desire for these objects and their imitation by some of the lower ranks. They never ceased in preparing and carrying them to market. A lot of these objects are in the American Museum of Natural History and the University of Pennsylvania Museum, museums across the country. This, uh, this next one is from Etienne Marchand, um, 1791, when he visited the Sitka folks, my father's people. <clears throat> they examined with the most scrupulous attention, turned about in every way, all that was presented to them, and they knew very well how to discover defects and point them out. On the other hand, they employed art and cunning in setting off their merchandise, and it may be said that in respect to interest and traffic, they have already made great strides in civilization, and that the modern Hebrews would perhaps have little to teach them. The Thlinket Market. I'm from the Thlinket Market. Did someone say Aztecs came here by boat when the ice melted? Here so long. We got beaches. We got tides. We got rain. We got water. Here so long. 
We had gold lost. We got tourists. We got hotels. We got re recreation. Give me a tour. We got leisure. We got trees. We chop wood. We burn it. We got poles. We got clans. We got old living here so long. We got spirit. Look me in the eye when I talk and you'll remember what I say. <clears throat> this next one is Modern Sounds. Crow drifts into the valley. Seal cry in early morning mist. Heartbeat of a whale. Drum rippling into blue. Geese in southern sky at twilight. Flying mountain meadows. Coho slaps water at the mouth of his home. Or dips, drips water. Wind silently blows into the sunset. Alder leaves fade dark brown. This one is uh, King of the Island. Um, the salmon uh, are one of the staples of uh, our people, our people's diets. There's all kinds of different salmon. King salmon, which is Chinook, I, I suppose. People refer to it as, as Chinook down here. Red salmon, silver salmon, um, pink salmon, all the, all the salmon. This one's king of the island. I'm wondering why no Tlingit claim salmon king for a crest. I'm wondering why there are no salmon kings, salmon clans among the islands. Salmon king coming home. Salmon king coming home to fresh water. When he jumps at the mouth of the stream, he is standing up for his people. He is telling his people how proud he is to be home. Stand up for your people. Respect your people. Tell them who you are. Tell them you are home. Tribal sovereignty. Uh, I thought of this one uh, after I heard this uh, I saw this PBS show on uh, the music of Duke Ellington, and uh, there was uh, one song that uh, you know was was uh, I forgot who sang it, sang it Ben Vereen I think, or some other guy. But uh, <clears throat> the name of the song was My Father's Island, and it was uh, a song that was you know performed. It, he, he didn't perform it when, when he was living. It was posthumously uh, published or whatever. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I thought of this. Uh, you know, as we're, it was really clear one time flying over southeast Alaska, and I thought of this. Raven queen above the trees, landowner on the stump and in the round, the black flight plan. Raven queen watches over you and me, owns the ground, owns the soil, 
the salt water and fresh water, owns the holy ground and the secular ground, brings fresh water to all places. The queen of the Tlingit lands watches the king of the islands swim from fresh water to salt water, back to fresh water. And this, uh, I guess I'll finish up with this one. This is, uh, I dreamed that, you know, we were out at, uh, at uh, fish camp, and uh, this is just essentially a, a transcription of the dream. <clears throat> uh, my family spends a lot of time outside of Sitka in fish camp preparing um, smoked fish, dried fish, in uh, just a few miles out of Sitka, Dog Point. I think it's called Dog Point because a lot of salmon migrate by there every every summer. Subsistence. And subsistence in Alaska is kind of a catchword, a buzzword for that is supposed to generally de describe Alaska Native culture. And I, I guess it's cl it's close enough. <clears throat> Dog salmon colors. Glistening. Evening sun. Incoming tide washing the beach. Dog salmon shine. Silver purple flash reaching. Lifting a big one by the tail. Incoming tide washing the beach. Time to eat fried dog salmon for dinner. Thanks a lot. Now my pleasure to introduce a very old friend of mine, Ken Kesey, author, author of One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, Sometimes a Great Notion, Demon Box, and a Counterculture. I'm going to read a, uh, an introduction to a book that's coming out this Christmas called Caverns by a writer called O.U. Levon. It's a result of my first and only, and I bet last year of uh, teaching college writing course <laughs> over at the University of Oregon. It's the hardest work I've ever done for the least amount of money, I can tell you that. Um, and it addresses what I had to confront when I uh, started this class of trying to figure out what is the job of the writer in this contemporary American culture. <clears throat> the introduction is called you can't mistake those burning eyes. 
Before the Reagan administration cut off liberal money to the arts and humanities, I traveled around to a lot of posh little writing teaching gigs. They'd fly you in, you'd get a pile of manuscripts to look over and a bunch of students. After some seminars and receptions, you'd take your check and fly home. <laughs> the money was good, the hours short, the limelight sweet. But when I looked back and tried to figure out what exactly did I teach those people, the only thing that stands out occurred, I think, at a weekend fiction workshop somewhere in Texas. Thirty students had been picked by the Regents, not on their ability, I gradually found out, but according to how much money their family had donated to the university. <laughs> One of this chosen thirty was a nervous old lady. Remember this, Larry? <laughs> the blue haired, about 65, donated a lot of money to the history wing of the library. One of the regents confided before he introduced her um, he, that she was known throughout the country as a philanthropist, activist, and amateur anthropologist. But I discerned at once that what she wanted to be known as, above all, was a writer. You can't mistake those burning eyes. When her turn came, she pity-patted primly to the front of the class with a gay bouquet of pink-inked pages and began reading. A tale dealing with her youth in an orchard where she was trying to pick peaches and her mature life in a nursing home where she was trying to teach people who could barely speak the English language something about English literature and about her husband and his near rise to the Senate, poor man. <laughs> Chopped in among all this was a goodly selection of whatever non-sequitur oil widow opinions she happened across in the old icebox. The result was schizoid stir-fry. My daddy's jackknife was never sharp enough for him, and if the communists had got around to it, they'd have built better, but the truth is the best book in the world has gone with the wind, and my daddy knew by the time we got to the airport we were never going to find our way home. <laughs> I listened to her sing song this sort of stuff for 45 minutes. I was amazed, impressed, appalled, touched, embarrassed. Most of all, I was pissed off. <laughs> Nobody had screened the story at all. Or worse, had screened it but felt that telling the old dame that her story was unseemly gibberish might, might be fiscally imprudent. <laughs> By the time she'd been reading about half an hour, she didn't have to be told. She knew. Everyone who's ever read in front of an audience knows. Eek! This is hideous, bloody awful, and I'm only halfway through. <laughs> but she sang-songed bravely on. The manuscript began to shiver in her hands like dead weeds, and the preppies at the back of the room started sniggering, finally laughing out loud. When she finished and sank back into her seat, there was blood in the water of that Texas classroom. Twenty-nine sharks were ready to show off their literary chops, and our old philanthropist knew she deserved devouring. Luckily, I remembered something that Malcolm Cowley had taught us at Stanford. Perhaps the most important lesson a writing class, not a writer, understand, but a class, can ever learn. Be gentle, he often admonished us, with each other's efforts. Be kind and considerate with your criticism. Always remember that it's just as hard to write a bad book as it is a good book. <laughs> I was able to pass this lesson on to that Texas workshop, and it worked. It was oil on bloody waters. We were all grateful. 
every writer I know teaches. At some point you have to, even if you don't have to. It's like having to yell instructions during a high school wrestling match if you used to be a collegiate grappler. You may not have been any world beater, but you had your own little specialty, two or three good moves that you could pull out of your pocket, a few simple tricks like look away from the half Nelson or swing out on that bar arm. For some reason, you have to yell these things, have to teach what you were taught, especially if you were taught by a great coach. It's been my good fortune to have a number of such coaches. Bill Hammer taught me the bar arm series, the basis of most pinning hold combinations. In Speech 101, Robert C. Clark taught me the three secrets of good diction, lips, tongue, and teeth, lips, tongue, and teeth. <laughs> and a great writer-teacher named James B. Hall revealed for me one of the keyholes of literature. I was a junior at the University of Oregon majoring in speech and drama. One of the requirements toward a degree was a term of TV writing. My screenplay instructor told me that uh, what you need is to learn something about story. I'm transferring you to J.B. Hall's fiction class. Fine with me. I loved fiction, especially the science sort. Ray Bradbury was my favorite. They don't get any better than Bradbury. I was fond of explaining. <laughs> then, <laughs> then Professor Hall had me read a story by Ernest Hemingway called Soldier's Home and asked me to explain to the class what the story was about. Well, I shrugged, all I can see is about this guy Krebs sitting in his mother's kitchen eating breakfast. She's hollering on him about getting out of the house and getting a job and developing some interest now that the war is over, but all he wants to do is go watch his sister play baseball someplace. No, Professor Hall said, here's what it's about, here. He strode over in his white shoes and stabbed a finger on the paragraph in the middle of my textbook. Right after his mother has served him his bacon and eggs and is telling him how she carried him next to her heart, what does Krebs do? What does he look at? Read it again, aloud. The paragraph was only one line long. Krebs looked at the bacon fat hardening on his plate. That's what the story is about. <laughs> that one line, that line sounds the note for the rest of the story. The whole composition wouldn't be in harmony with that without that key to tune it to, do you see? And I'm damned if I didn't. And that key unlocked for me the resounding hall of real literature and eventually got me into the door. A couple of short stories won me a Woodrow Wilson to the famous Wallace Stegner writing class at Stanford. Professor Steger, Stegner mistook me, I fear, for an anti-intellectual, not understanding that I was, in fact, something far less presupposing, a near illiterate. <laughs> Especially compared to the rest of his blue chip roster. There was C.K. Koch from Australia, my year of living dangerously, Ernest Gaines, the autobiography of Miss Jean Pittman, Tilly Olson, Tell Me a Riddle, Peter Beagle, A Fine and Private Place, The Last Unicorn, Robert Stone, A Hall of Mirrors, Dog Soldiers, A Flag for Sunrise, Children of Light, Ken Babs, Cassidy in the Back House, a trio called the Kentucky Mafia, Wendell Berry, Ed McClanahan, and Gurney Norman, all with numerous and notable novels and collections in print, and Larry McMurtry, with a pile of work that should stretch if all the pages are ever laid end to end from Texas to Stockholm. <laughs> there were others, but you get the idea. It's a hell of a team. 
like Green Bay under Lombardi. And when you include the assistant coaches, Richard Scowcroft, Malcolm Cowley, Frank O'Connor, you've got a hell of a program. Maybe we weren't entirely aware of it at the time. This was the wild, young years of the early 60s, remember, and there was a lot to be aware of. But we have all surely looked back on our seasons together with something like awe. There's a binding tie about being part of a good, tight team, a bond that never fully unravels when the season ends and the members go their different directions. Most of us still keep in touch, and many of us are lifelong friends. Family, my kids, Ed's kids, Wendell's kids, Bob Stone's kids have all known each other all their lives. Ken Babb's kids and my kids have all gone to the same school, kindergarten to graduation. Moreover, Cowley's lesson has kept us available to each other as kind and considerate critics. We can send each other unfinished drafts without fear of getting cleverly gutted by some green-eyed literary demon with a grudge to grind. When a flag for sunrise wins Bob Stone the National Book Award, or Larry gets the Pulitzer for Lonesome Dove, I feel nothing but joy for the glory. It does us all proud. Another of Cowley's teaching, good writing, glories, all writers, you aren't in competition. So, okay. It's all well and good to say, but after doing enough of these weekend workshops, I learned it isn't so easy to bring off. Competition is often in full swing before the visiting coach gets there. If young Mr. Millenhead comes down hard on Ms. Melancholia's tender tale of troubled teenage girls in the Bougainvillea, you can bet your best thesaurus that Ms. Melancholia is going to thump Millenhead roundly for his roisterous romp in the ROTC camp. After years of refereeing this cruel and futile give-and-take, I hit upon a plan. Have everybody work on the same project. Even better than walking a mile in the other writer's moccasins, mix them up till you can't tell who's or who's. After talking the plan over with a number of the people at the University of Oregon for a number of years, I got a job. The writing department picked me out a baker's dozen of creative from the creative writing program, second-year grad students ranging from the ages 22 to 42. My wife and I own this two-story house near campus. We're making payments on it anyway. But we had never lived there. It's about two blocks from the Oregon Library. The living room is big enough to hold 13 people around a long table, and this table is important. The table in the Jones Room at Stanford was as important as the books on the shelves. It was long and oval-shaped, with an indentation at one end where the teacher sat like a captain at the helm. So my first day at class, I headed in from the farm, nervous and late. My palms were moist and my mouth was dry, and I was driving my 1973 Eldorado convertible, white with red trim, hoping to make an impressive entrance. <coughs> I swing into the drive, and there they all are, waiting. But the house is locked and Faye is gone and I don't have the key to get in. I'm a farm boy. And I get in through a little window into the basement, but the door at the top of the basement steps is locked. And I crawl back out and I find there's one rear window that I can get in that isn't locked. But it's painted so tight I can't get it open. I get the tire arm out of the back of the car and I pry up the sill and I push the window open. And I get a good grip and I make a jump and I hit my head on the bottom of the window frame that I've just pried up and I knock myself clean out. And I fall in with my legs sticking up, and as I'm coming to, I hear somebody outside say, Well, 
That's curly. I wonder when Larry and Moe gets here. <laughs> My, the first assignment was that they write a character sketch about themselves in the third person. It doesn't take long an assignment like that. As I collected the papers, I told them the goals and the rules of the class. The goals were to conceive, rough out, write, rewrite, and submit a finished novel in the three terms allotted us. The rules were even simpler and fewer, only two. The first rule being that we cannot tell anybody outside the class what the plot of the novel we were working on, about the plot of the novel we were working on. And the second was that I make up half the class. In a critical dispute, I wanted to be able to call G or Ha and keep plowing. A crop like we were going to try to bring in didn't have time to luxuriate in literary debate. The season was too short. After reading the character sketches that came back, I said, okay, it's clear to me that you guys can write. We can all write. Now, what are we going to write? It took several sessions of this before they all gradually came to the grudging realization that I didn't have a cold idea in hell what we were going to write. No plot, no characters, nothing. I did come up with some suggestions about what to avoid, though. Don't let's set it in a university. The university novel is Saul Bellow's Corner, or Philip Roth's Corner. I also suggest that we don't set it in current time. That way, we avoid having to compete with the hip Miami Vice kind of current time dialogue. And just as I suggest we arbitrarily do not write about this place or this time, I suggest as well we do not write about what we know. One of the dumbest things you were ever taught was write what you know, because what you know is usually dull. Remember when you first wanted to be a writer, eight or ten years old, reading about thin-lipped heroes flying over mysterious viney jungles toward untold wonders? That's what you wanted to write about, about what you didn't know. So, what mysterious time and place don't we know? We gnawed this bony problem for a week or so before we realized something. And it's hard to create any sort of righteous plot without some character. Character comes first. Medea doesn't start in a soap writer's meeting. I got it. Let's do a thing about a wife that gets so beaked at her old man she kills the kids. <laughs> no, Medea starts with the character of Medea. This prompted another assignment. Let's arbitrarily pick a time before any of us were here. I was born in 1935. Let's go back to 1934 and each design a character that fits into that time. Then we'll let them go somewhere together. They came back with a collection that would have made Chaucer grin. This pack of pilgrims had integrity, independence. Some of them were as independent, as my grandmother used to say, as a hog on ice. They wouldn't be manipulated. We tried to set up love affairs between such and so, only to find that so wouldn't have any part of it, and neither would such. The best we could get them all to agree to was that they were all going someplace together. What place? The road to Canterbury is totally loaded. The Mississippi completely choked with rafts and runaway slaves. Hunting whales in the high seas is out of vogue and lost horizons on Tibetan mountaintops out of focus. Let's find a place where people haven't been. Let's go down a hole. Good, at least we know where we're going. Whew. Now all we have to do is find out why these people are going down this hole and what happens to them on the way and what it means to everybody and we got us a novel. On second thought, let's not step on that 
what it means to everybody's step, that plank is always a little squeaky. I didn't go over at the university much. It wasn't that I avoided the academic scene so much as the book began to push everything out of my life. We met twice a week, 2.30 on Monday to 2.30 on Friday. As these encounters approached, I would find myself spinning around in my skin the way I used to before I went on the mat. It wasn't that the class was my opponent. My opponent was some kind of indistinct inertia. The class was my team. A few months into the first term, we had the plot blocked out and I began assigning sections. Write them at home and then read them to the class. Trouble was, I quickly saw, that the prose was beginning to go rapidly purple, like bothered bruises. Segments were becoming involuted, worked and reworked, personal. When we tried to sew these pieces together, we came up with a monstrosity that only Mary Shelley could love. (laughs) That's when we came up with our third rule, that we would henceforth not write anything apart from each other. We would sit down at the table, we'd design the section that we were going to write about, and we'd divide it into segments enough to go around, and we'd draw lots. We'd look up on the board and see what our task was, and we'd bend down and write. No talking. 30 minutes, and then we'd read it aloud. An immediate presentation before your peers, not of your ability to rewrite, but to write. And there is a difference. When the 30 minutes was up, we refilled the coffee pot, opened another bottle of Cabernet, took this little tape recorder that I'm talking into right now and passed it to number one, and he started the chapter. Number two came after that, and all the way through until the chapter had run its course, and the wine bottle was empty, and the tape was ready for Barbara. Barbara Platts is an old ally of mine from a number of projects. Barbara took the tape, ran it through the transcriber, and played it with her foot, and fed it into the computer in the computer room. We printed it out, and the next, when the class came back to the next meeting, there was a copy of the previous chapter ready for rewriting. And I'm going to interject something in here, that it didn't go into the introduction because it was a tad profane for Vikings' taste. At, as we ended up the year, I told them we're going to do a reading. We're going to present this class before the English teachers, before the dean, before our folks, before our wives, before all of our colleagues. We booked a hall, and I told them, get dressed up, get into 1934 rig, and I want you to come out there. We're going to have one novel sitting out on the middle of the desk there. We're sitting in a long line. I said, I want you to sit on the edge of your chair. Don't loll back. Stand up when you read your section. Speak clearly. Look people in the eyes. Read about five minutes from each chapter all the way to the end. And sit down and do an old-fashioned recitation. And I have never been part of anything more nervous. Because everybody began to realize, hey, this is publication whether it ever reaches print or not, you're having to stand there and put your work out in front of people. And that's where it gets shaky. And we were going along pretty good. And the guy that was reading the last section was a young, curly-haired boy that had written in his character sketch about himself that he was a lapsed Jew. And he read about three minutes of his section. Then he reached into his coat And he pulled out two pages, typed on both sides, single space. And he began to read this stuff. And I realized we were not only dealing with a lapsed Jew (laughs) 
and a rogue reader, but the son of a gun was an ex-Rajneeshi, had been one of the Rajneeshis up in uh, Portland, and all of this stuff, which is about our hero down in the cavern, the most important part, he, he begins to ruminate on the seventh chakra and the diamond sutras and this stuff. <laughs> he drones on for 10 minutes, and the class, sitting on the edge of their seat, didn't flinch. You could hear the teeth grinding all the way across, but they didn't move. And after it was over, we went back to the uh, campus house there, and oh man, they were just furious. I mean, they had been betrayed in a way that they could not imagine anybody was ever going to betray them. And they just, what you want to talk about? I said, let's not talk about it. Let's just not talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And, and he came in at that point, and he said, what do you think? I said, see, he wants to talk about it. We just will not talk about it. We'll never talk about it. And so we didn't. And it began to hang on the guy and press on the guy, and you could feel it weighing on him until in our last lecture, I realized that something had to be said about this just to cut him loose. And I said, all right, we started this class off by talking about what's the job of the writer in current Republican America. I said that one of these days you're going to be walking along the street and some light is going to appear across the street. And you're going to look across the street there and there God is going to be standing and you're going to know it's God because he's got this beautiful curly locks just like Jesus and it comes out through his halo and he's got these little thin slitty eyes like Buddha and he's got a lot of swords in his belt just like Mohammed and he's going to say to you, come to me. Come across the street to me. Come to me, and I will give you riches, and I will have great melon-titted, purple-nippled muses sing in your ear, and you will be the most famous, wonderful writer in the absolute world. Come to me. All you have to do is sing my praises. The job of the writer is to say, Fuck you, God! Fuck you! Fuck you! <laughs> and that's what we got to get back to. Anyway, <laughs> as they say of circus fires, it was intense. <laughs> but nobody missed much class. You couldn't afford to. One afternoon, H. Highwater Powers had to leave early for his job as organist. He had read his section first out of turn, and he split for the church. No sooner was he out the door than Jim Finley passed around a note. Let's kill Highwater's character. Cold as this sounded, it did in fact suggest a solution to a problem we were having at that point in the plot. You see, the mysterious lake that we had discovered in the grotto had to have some kind of outlet flowing out of it because of the underground river flowing in and Highwater's character being killed and drowned might be the very... But that's getting ahead of the story. Thank you. And our final reader is Barry Lopez.
And our final reader is Barry Lopez, novelist, short story writer, essayist, and traveler. I'll just mention Arctic Dreams, which won the American Book Award. Barry. Thank you. So, sort of like to ask Ken to <laughs> finish it off. I'd like to thank Larry and, and Penn for this invitation for for all of us to be here, and I'd like to thank all of you for for coming tonight and uh, uh, listening to us. We're a diverse group, and that's uh, that's the sweetness of life. Um, I've never done anything like this before, but I'll tell you, um, you feel such an affection for the people you work with in circumstances like this, and in in the sense that you occupy some of the same geographical landscape and. And what Ken said about the tremendous sense of pleasure you take in each other's success is uh, is something that you feel throughout this region that we live in. Uh, all of us are human beings. We all have our dreams, and we're all egos, and all of that goes without saying. But uh, but I do mean to tell you there is a feeling out there that that makes you feel healthy because of the success of of the men and women that you have a beer in a bar with, or you see in town, or something like that. And uh, I think that. Once literature loses that sense of the vision of all men and women as diverse and, and as, um, uh, as, as complex it is, as it is, if, if we ever lose the sense that we need all the voices, uh, we know we've gone mad. And that the great sense of health in that landscape out there to me is in part that it, it's so diverse and it's so sweet to hear all of these different voices and to realize that this is just a small part of a little country and all over the world there are men and women singing in different languages and uh, God it's no wonder you want to read it's no wonder you have that hunger you know let alone to write um, I wanted to to say a couple of things about geography and, and history I think um, which is what's preoccupying me at the moment I I finished a short while ago an, an essay about um, the geography of, of North America, or, or of, uh, of the United States, rather. This was a, um, a project between, that was, is uh, dreamed up between a Soviet publisher and an American publisher and had seven of us in the United States and seven American writers and seven Soviet writers writing on seven subjects. So when the book is published, we'll be there in pairs talking about the same abstract idea with respect to our own uh, country. And, and I, was, I was honored to be asked to to write this essay about um, uh, the American geography, and I, I took—I was angry about the idea to begin with because I thought that uh, an American geography, one American geography, probably only exists in the mind of uh, somebody like the president or uh, somebody who's in national advertising or something like that. Where the truth of the matter is that it—that it is, as we have seen in microcosm tonight, a matter of these. Uh, brilliant little stars. It's the same way that it is in the heavens. That's why they call it heaven. Um, there are all these little landscapes all across North America. And so I thought I'd read this one piece toward the end of the essay about, about a movement from one side of, of this country to the other. In the end, then, if one begins among the blue crabs of Chesapeake Bay, and wanders for several years down through the Smoky Mountains and back to the Bluegrass Hills, 
along the drainages of the Ohio and into the hill country of Missouri, where in summer a chorus of cicadas might drown out human conversation, and then up the Missouri itself, reading on the way the entries of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, and musing on the demise of the Plains Grizzly and the Sturgeon, crosses west into the drainage of the Platte, and spends the evenings with Jean Weltfish's The Lost Universe, her book about the Pawnee who once thrived there, then drops south to Palo Duro Canyon and the irrigated farms of the Llano Estacado in Texas, turns west across the Sangre de Cristo, southernmost of the Rocky Mountain Ranges, and moves north and west up onto the Slick Rock Mesas of Utah, those browns and oranges, the odorous hues reverberating in the deep canyons, then goes north, swinging west to the insular ranges that sit like battleships in the pelagic space of Nevada, camps at the steaming edge of sulfur springs in the Black Rock Desert where alkaline pans are glazed with a ferocious light, a heat to melt iron, then crosses the southern, the northern Sierra Nevada, waist-deep in summer snow in the passes to descend to the valley of the Sacramento and rises through groves of elephantine redwoods to the coast range, to arrive at Cape Mendocino before Balboa's Pacific, cormorants and gulls, gray whales headed north for Unimac Pass and the Aleutians, the wind crashing down on you, facing the ocean over the blue ocean that gives the scene its true vastness, making this crossing, having been so often astonished at the line and the color of the land, the ingenious lives of its plants and animals, the varieties of its darknesses, the intensity of the stars overhead, you would be ashamed to discover then in yourself any capacity to focus on ravages in the land that left you unsettled. You would have seen so much, breathtaking, startling, and outsize, that you might not be able for a long time to break the spell, the sense, especially finishing your journey in the West, that the land had not been as rearranged or quite as compromised as you had first imagined. That sentence, actually, I guess, comes in the middle of, of a, a laying out of the diversity of the American landscape and a consideration of a notion that I call a false geography, the promulgation of false geographies, which, of course, serve totalitarian regimes. And I don't mean only political regimes. False geographies serve um, all sorts of totalitarian minds, and, and we should be on guard against them. There's no reason to say that because we... Um, because you come from one part of the country that you can't have a deep appreciation of other parts of the country. And I think in whatever part of the country you live, you should take people to task for disparaging other parts of the country, especially people who come from there and tell you with false knowledge that they know what your home is all about and they hate their own home. Those are never very comfortable people to have. So I want to add, I think as many of my colleagues might, that... Um, it's always sweet to come to this town. Um, there's always something here, I find, because perhaps I'm not jaded, I guess. Um, there's a quality I saw coming in from the airport last night, this light that's coming on, that comes on in New York in the winter, this wonderful blue light that starts to rise in those cold skies. And that's one thing I remember always about coming here and what a, what a pleasure it is to see the, the quality of light coming out of the sky against all those buildings, all those monuments to dreams. The other piece that I would like to share with you briefly has to do with something that I've been looking at more and more seriously in, in 
the, the, over the past few years, and that's the um, the Spanish incursion into the so-called New World. Um, this piece is is the opening section of a of a of an essay called "The Passing Wisdom of Birds," and it deals uh, in part with Cortez and uh, in large part in the middle of the essay with um, a sense of our predicament and um, a sense of, of, of upon what we shall f found, I, I guess, our hope. Um, I have found in, in my own life that I, I always end up looking at, at dark things and, uh, and if I didn't find a sense of hope in them, I don't think that I would be motivated to write about them because part of the way in which I understand writing or literature uh, especially today, is that in one way or another we are all of us involved in the creation and recreation of a literature of hope. Um, some of it is nonfiction, some of it is fiction, some of it is poetry. You can, I'm really interested personally in making the kinds of distinctions that eliminate one genre or another or one form or another. What's, what's at the heart of this is that men and women telling stories to make sure that the people in the community stay healthy through their laughter and through their sense of by coming to be reorganized and hearing a story that everything that they dream they can do, they can do. Uh, we fill our dreams by telling each other stories. That's the way we look after each other. And, and writers are a group of people who, who choose uh, to do that. I, I heard someone at a, one of these um, a, a group of writers got together a while ago and people were asking questions about us and, and I was astonished because so many of the stereotypes about writers came up that were all, um, I don't know, egomaniacs or running for governor or side, you know, all the usual stuff that comes up. And I thought, you know, no one has said that what's so obvious about writers is that they write in part because of their love for people. Even when you write about the things that are dark and have gone wrong and sad and ugly, you're not writing just to say, oh, it's dark and sad and ugly. Um, you're trying to say, I think, many men and women are, um, I love you, all of what we are, that we love this, this is what we are, and we should, we should be celebrating what we are and, and not taking our, light off that, our eyes off the light that we're headed toward. But, but, um, so that, I'm not carrying that too far, I'm just saying that um, what I'm going to read you will prove to be disturbing, and, I, and in the, the context of the essay it, it is resolved, I hope. On the 8th of November, 1519, Fernando Cortez and 400 Spanish soldiers marched self-consciously out of the city of Iztapalapa, Mexico, and started across the great Iztapalapan causeway separating the lakes of Xochimilco and Chalco. They had been received the afternoon before in Iztapalapa as demigods, but they stared now in disbelief at what lay before them. Reflecting brilliantly on the vast plain of dark water like a landscape of sunlit chalk, its lines sharp as cut stone in the dustless air at 7,200 feet, was the Aztec Byzantium, Tenochtitlan, Mexico City. It is impossible to know what was in the facile, highly charged mind of Cortez that morning, anticipating his first meeting with the reluctant Montezuma. But Bernal Diaz, who was present, tells us what was on the minds of the soldiers. They asked each other, 
was it real? Gleaming Iztapalapa behind them, the smooth causeway beneath their feet, imposing Tenochtitlan ahead. The Spanish had been in the New World for 27 years, but what they discovered in the Valley of Mexico that fall had never been heard of or seen before, nor even dreamed about in their world. What astounded them was not solely the extent and sophistication of the engineering that divided and encompassed the lake surrounding Tenochtitlan, nor the evidence that a separate culture utterly different from their own pursued a complex life in this huge city. It was the depth and pervasiveness of the natural beauty before their senses. The day before, they had strolled the spotless streets of Iztapalapa through plots of full-blossomed flowers, arranged in patterns and in colors pleasing to the eye, through irrigated fruit orchards and into still groves of aromatic trees like cedar. They sat in the shade of bright cotton awnings in quiet stone patios and marveled at the robustness and the well-tended orderliness of the vegetable gardens around them. Roses glowed against the lime-washed walls of the houses like garnets and alexandrites. In the hour before sunset, the cool, fragrant air was filled with the whirr and flutter of birds and lit with birdsong. That had been Iztapalapa. Mexico City, they thought. Even as their leader dismounted that morning with solemn deliberation from that magical creature, the horse, to meet an advancing Montezuma ornately caparisoned in gold and silver and bird feathers, Mexico City, they thought, as they approached, could only outdo Iztapalapa. And it did. With Montezuma's tentative welcome, they were free to wander in its various precincts. Mexico City confirmed the image of a people gardening with meticulous care and with exquisite attention to line and detail at the edge of nature. It is clear from Diaz's historical account that the soldiers were stunned by the physical beauty of Tenochtitlan. Venice came to their minds in comparison because of its canals, but Venice was not as intensely fresh, as well lit as Mexico City. And there was not to be found in Venice or in Salamanca or Paris for that matter, anything like the great varieties, the great aviaries, where thousands of birds, white egrets, energetic wrens and thrushes, fierce accipiters, brilliantly colored parrots were housed and tended. They were as captivating, as fabulous as the displays of flowers. Vermilion flycatchers, copper-tailed trogons, green jays, blue-throated hummingbirds, and summer tanagers, great blue herons, brooding condors. And throughout the city, wild birds nested. Even Cortez, intensely preoccupied with politics, with guiding a diplomacy of conquest in the region, noticed the birds. He was struck, too, by the affinity of the Mexican people for their gardens and for the measured and intricate flow of water through their city. He took time to write Charles V in Spain, describing it all. Cortez's men, says Diaz, never seemed to tire of the arboretums, the gardens and aviaries in the months following their entry into the city. 
By June of 1520, however, Cortez's psychological manipulation of Montezuma and a concomitant arrogance, greed, and disrespect on the part of the Spanish military force had become too much for the Mexicans, and they drove them out. Cortez, relentless and vengeful, returned to the Valley of Mexico 11 months later with a larger army and laid siege to the city. Canal by canal, garden by garden, home by home, he destroyed what he had described to Charles V as the most beautiful city in the world. On June 16th, in a move calculated to humiliate and frighten the Mexican people, Cortez set fire to the aviaries. That moment in the history of our country, although we now distinguish Mexico from the United States, and I, I have never been able to get over that moment in my mind because it seemed to me symbolic in some way of, of what we had done in America. We had found something beautiful that, that filled the heart and filled the soul and filled the mind and filled the body and we had burned it down we torn up the texts and killed all the people and imposed a way of life what you see so clearly in the Spanish incursions into the new world is the difference between what it means to impose a view and what it means to propose a view and I would like to think after 500 years of this colonialism in all its shades, the imposition of a way of life on other people and on the landscape would come to an end. And what we would be finding ourselves doing instead was proposing the best of what we had for the consideration of other peoples, other cultures, and the land itself. I am reminded whenever I think not just of this incident but of the necessity to distinguish between proposing and imposing and this to the terrific weight that many of us feel I think about colonialism of a writer in South Africa about whom the following I wrote the following just just a couple of sentences this man's name is Ndebulo Ndebeli, and in the words of one reviewer of his work, Ndebeli explores in his fiction, said the critic, the destructive nature of the obsession with injustice, and he himself speaks of the need for a literature that will outlast the anger. These words became memorable to me when I read them because it's a call to us to take a higher road than simply to castigate and to, to spin our moral wheels and condemning all that's gone wrong in societies. And instead, what we should be doing is what this young 24-year-old man can see, even in his youth, and that is to write a literature that will outlast the anger. And I think, too, of a Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeano, who in, in a brilliant trilogy about the the coming of the Spanish to the New World and about the history of South America called Memory of Fire writes 
what to me are, are the great heroes among our own people, if we can take the Spanish as our ancestors, the people whom we should be turning to as, as, as the kind of men and women that we can, uh, that we can link arms with in this, in this business of trying to get a handle on this colonial frame of mind that began here in the East to strip the land and is playing out its last cards in our homeland by dropping the last of the big trees. Um, what the Forest Service, or what we sometimes call the Forest Circus, refers to in its in its bizarre way as over mature timber. So we could uh, we should I guess in their view there there we should start dropping people at, at some point that are over mature. I'd always wanted to meet an over mature person. You just meet so many under mature, you know. So maybe there's a balance. But the, the last of this business of stripping the land of everything it produces, of stripping it of its native people, of stripping of it its water and its air and its trees, of all of its minerals, taking everything that it offers and paying back nothing, the last bit of it is going on in the Pacific Northwest today and up in southeast, in the southeast Alaska. They're taking them out. My wife calls the big trucks that come by our house day in and day out, day in and day out, the hearses dragging these big trees, sometimes only one log to a truck, the hearses taking the last of the big ones out. And its I know it's hard to imagine here. Sometimes I think when you live far removed from open landscapes like that, you wonder, must be better than, than I imagine. Well, it's worse than you can conceive. Um, if you would come home with me, I would take you into the hills, into the mountains around my home, and you would weep. You would see from the road that it looked okay because the Forest Service has a practice of not cutting the trees that can be seen from the public highways. So people get the impression it's probably okay. But drive 500 yards off the road, stick your nose into any valley, and you'll see a kind of devastation that'll break your heart. That, for better or worse, is the heritage of our country. And at some point, everybody's sort of got to suck it up and do something about it. This transcends, in my mind, anything having to do with uh, environmentalism or something. This is the health of human beings the world over. And I think, from what I hear, traveling in Africa and Australia and in China and Japan, even in Antarctica, these are the political issues of the 21st century. These are the things we're going to have to put the best parts of our minds to. And when I think of heroes, when I think of who, who can you call on in the middle of this colonial, the last bit of this colonial madness, who can you call on to look up to? You can think of people like Martin de Porres, a kind of spiritual warrior who matured in the city of Peru in the 16th century, along with his friend Rose of Lima, who was in the Catholic tradition the first saint in the New World. And men like Las Casas, the fanatic of human dignity, who wrote for 52 years into the teeth of that ill wind from the Vatican about the dignity and the right of native people to determine both the timing and the direction of change themselves and not to have it imposed upon them by another race, another culture, another time. Las Casas died writing in defense of the dignity of people. So he is one of us too. He is a hero. And Sahagun, uh, Franciscan, whose work was suppressed for 200 years, who instead of telling Aztec people what to think, asked them what they thought, and then learned Nahuatl, and then wrote it down. But we didn't have the advantage of those books for hundreds of years. So in the past, 
These little-known men and women are there, and they can be ferreted out by reading history. And these are some words about one of them, a man named Vasco de Quiroga. Quiroga was the bishop in the middle of the 16th century of Michoacan, and he believed that he saw in the elements of native society, indigenous society in Michoacan, the principles by which men and women could lead not the elusive and impossible perfect life, but lives of great dignity, lives of, of well and poorly phrased poetry, but good lives, and in which, in, in lives in which children would never be afraid to grow up, to take whatever chances they wanted to take in the world. And he speaks of Kuroga by saying that in the times to come, the Indians here will remember Vasco de Quiroga as their own, the dreamer who riveted his eyes on a hallucination to see beyond the time of infamy. It is never up to one writer, ever, to say what writers should be doing, and I don't want to be understood in that way, but I would like to say that, that I think each of us in our different ways in our nurturing of human souls, is trying to do that, to fix our eyes on an hallucination that will take us beyond this time of infamy. We're trying to write a literature that will take us beyond our anger. We're trying to write, in every age, we're trying to write a literature of hope. And in that sense, I want to say thank you for all of you who came here tonight because although it was the five of us who stood up here and spoke and had the podium for a short time, I think there are many people out here, there are writers as well, but we're all readers, and I am as enriched by reading the work of these people as I am by reading the works of people I've never heard of, but who gave me the courage in dark times to say, yes, I hope, I hope we can be like this, like all of these stories that are stored inside us. Thank you. We want to thank you for coming and thank these fine writers for coming so far. Uh, if you want to stay just for a moment, we'll let you try to ask a few questions. Um, I know some, uh, if you can't stay, we're going to have a reception just after this outside. The reception, alas, will be for people 21 years and over because of the drinking laws here. We just don't have the manpower to check you all. I guess I don't quite know how to handle these questions. If you have a burning question, um, uh, if you'll come up, uh, we'll let you address it to the writer you want to, to question. I don't know. I don't see any burning. I, uh, here is one. Yes. The question is about Earth First. Does, does anyone want to speak about Earth First? Yeah, I, I did a thing for Earth First recently. Uh, they have a big tree that they were moving across the country with, uh, and 
uh, I was really